Due to the graphic nature of this week's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Travis sat slouched on the edge of the bed, running his hands over his face. He was exhausted, ready to go back home to Arizona. He had hoped that this weekend would be a fun visit with his best friends, Sky and Chris. But they weren't getting along with his girlfriend, Jody. He listened in disbelief to their concerns about Jody's behavior. They rattled off a long list of what they considered to be serious red flags, accusing Jody of being a master manipulator fueled by jealousy. They urged him to break up with her. Travis shook his head. Jody was one of the nicest women he'd met, always taking care of him. Sky and Chris's accusations about her didn't add up, but Sky urged him to please trust her on this. He needed to get out of this relationship as soon as possible. A noise in the hallway silenced them. Someone was on the other side of the door. Travis quickly jumped up, ran to the bedroom door, and flung it open. Standing in the hallway was Jody. She'd been listening to every word. Travis forced himself to look at her. All of the gentle sweetness had evaporated. Jody glared over his shoulder at Sky and Chris and spat. Are you going to tell Travis not to date me anymore? Sky fired back. I already have, and I want you to leave my house. Travis watched Jody process the words. He thought she looked sad at first. Then, she pressed her mouth into an angry, thin line, and her eyes burned with rage. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion on the Parcast Network. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show... We explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information. Travis Alexander and Jody Arias met at a legal conference in 2006. It felt like fate had intervened to bring them together. They were both tending to broken hearts and had found a panacea in each other. But as their relationship progressed, jealousy pushed the couple apart. This week, we'll follow the progression of Jody and Travis's coupling, how they met, fell in love, and then broke up. Next week, we'll explore the aftermath of a murder, the investigation, and a sensational trial that followed. Travis Alexander was born on July 28, 1977, in Riverside, California. 
When he told people about his childhood, he tended to focus on what he had overcome rather than what he had suffered through. His parents were drug addicts, his father was rarely around, and his mother was usually too high on methamphetamine to care for Travis and his seven siblings. Instead, Travis looked after them. He quickly learned to walk on eggshells around his mother. If he woke her up while she slept off her most recent drug bender, she would beat him up. In addition to this abuse, Travis and his siblings were neglected. His mother wasn't able to keep a job, and any money that did come in went straight to her drug habit. Travis and his siblings were often without proper clothing, shelter, or food. He was always hungry. The house was filthy and infested with cockroaches. Several mornings, he woke up to find them crawling on him. Just a note before we continue. I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to an extensive study conducted by Harvard Medical School, children of addicted parents face significantly higher risks of addiction and other behavior problems such as depression. In order to combat this, these children need to have an outside support system that reassures them that they are not responsible for their parents' behavior. Luckily, Travis had this outside support system in his paternal grandparents, Norma and Jim. When Travis was 10, he ran away from home to live with them. His grandparents were devout members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and introduced Travis to their religious beliefs. Finally in a stable environment and surrounded by a supportive community, Travis thrived, coming out of his shell for the first time. He joined the high school wrestling team, shedding some of his baby fat and developing a lifelong passion for working out. Throughout high school, he also saved money to fund a mission trip for his church. It's common practice in the Mormon faith for young men and women to spend two years on a mission in various places around the world. Depending on the location, they spend that time proselytizing, supporting church services, or engaging in humanitarian aid and community service. When Travis graduated high school in 1995, he was assigned to Denver, Colorado to serve his mission. He returned to Riverside in 1998 with honor and moved into a house with other single LDS men. He was ready to tackle his next big assignment, finding a wife. Travis felt like he had a lot to offer the women he dated. He was attractive, responsible, trustworthy, and despite what he'd faced in his childhood, had an endlessly positive outlook on life. He was a devout LDS member who treated his girlfriends with respect, but none of the women he dated were ready for marriage yet and his search for the perfect woman continued for a few years. Then in 2000, Travis met Deanna Reed. She was also a member of the LDS church. They dated briefly, then Deanna went on her own mission to Costa Rica. When she returned in 2002, they rekindled their romance. It seemed like Deanna was the woman Travis had been searching for. In 2004, the 27-year-old moved from Riverside to Mesa, Arizona to be closer to her. As their relationship progressed, the couple began having premarital sex in opposition to their Mormon faith. According to the church's official website, sexual sins are extremely serious because it is an abuse of the power he has given us to create life. The church instructed, no one, male or female, 
is to have sexual relations before marriage. Premarital sex has been described by the church as the third most serious sin after murder and adultery. The gravity of defying the church's law of chastity weighed on the relationship and Travis and Deanna eventually broke up. There are conflicting stories behind their separation. After years of looking for his future wife, when Deanna and Travis talked about getting married, he was now the one who wasn't ready. According to Deanna, she didn't see his feelings about marriage changing anytime soon and therefore ended the relationship. Travis's change of heart could have stemmed from residual trauma from his childhood. According to licensed marriage and family counselor Darlene Lancer, many children of addicts practice extreme self-reliance, protecting themselves from depending on anyone else to fulfill their needs. This is a common coping mechanism for children raised by adults who were unable to take care of them. Travis may have feared marriage to Deanna because it made him feel incredibly vulnerable. However, some of his friends suggested an alternative explanation. Marrying Deanna was settling. Travis wanted to sow more wild oats before committing to one woman for the rest of his life. They recalled that Travis wanted to be with someone who could be considered arm candy. When Travis met beautiful, blonde Jody Arias in September of 2006, he found someone more than suitable to fit that bill. Jody Arias was born on July 9, 1980, in Salinas, California, the oldest child of Bill and Sandra Arias. Not much is known about Jody's childhood, but in an interview with CNN, her former babysitter, Beth Hawkins, described her as an exceptionally aggressive child. She recounted a time that Jody struck her younger brother in the head with a baseball bat. According to Hawkins, she couldn't leave Jody alone with her brother without some kind of violent incident occurring. When she was a teenager, Jody allegedly became abusive toward her mother, Sandra, one time even punching her in the face. But Jody attested that Bill and Sandra were the abusive ones, spanking her with a wooden spoon and occasionally a belt. She described her upbringing as strict and oppressive. However, she did find an outlet in photography. She developed the hobby around age 10 and it continued throughout adulthood. Jody grew up to be a rebellious teenager, constantly at war with her parents and even experimenting with marijuana. According to Bill Arias, Jody had mood swings. He said, quote, She'll call and be real sweet, and 10 minutes later, she'll call back in a rage, you know, just screaming at my wife, end quote. Based on Bill's description of these extreme highs and lows, it's unsurprising that Jody was later diagnosed as having borderline personality disorder, or BPD. Elements Health Behavioral defined BPD best when they said, People with BPD are on a roller coaster of unpredictable mood shifts, engulfing feelings of insecurity and self-destructive behaviors, and all too often, they take loved ones along for the ride. Jody's mood swings would throw everyone around her for a loop. When she was 17, Jody ran away from home to live with her 20-year-old on-again, off-again boyfriend, Bobby Wattis. Bill Arias said that Jody ran away after he grounded her for repeatedly ditching school. While living with Wattis in Oregon during one of their off-again phases, Jody started a relationship with his roommate, Matt McCartney. 
At the time, McCartney was undergoing a spiritual development. He studied Buddhism, Hinduism, and Eastern mysticism. Jody joined him in these curiosities. She said, quote, We sort of explored together, taking meditation seminars, New Age-type seminars, which sort of had roots in Hinduism or Buddhism and were kind of like a modern version of transcendentalism, end quote. Jody's search for a spiritual identity would continue throughout her adult life. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, people with borderline personality disorder may display uncertainty about how they see themselves and their role in the world. As a result, their interests and values can change quickly. Eventually, Jody and McCartney broke up after she caught him cheating. She moved to Big Sur, California in 2001. While working as a waitress at the Ventana Inn and Spa, 22-year-old Jody developed an interest in her manager, 42-year-old Daryl Brewer. Brewer was recently divorced and had a three-year-old son, but that didn't deter Jody. When Brewer changed jobs in 2002 and was no longer her direct superior, they started formally dating. As the relationship progressed, Jody changed her appearance to match Brewer's ex-wife, a natural brunette she started bleaching her hair blonde. After Daryl's ex-wife got breast implants, so did Jody. She even bought the same model car. Jody's mimicking behavior can also be explained by the BPD. According to Dr. Crystalline Salters Pedneau, people with BPD often go to great lengths to try to avoid abandonment. It is quite possible that Jody felt if she did not change her appearance to match Daryl's ex-wives, that he would leave her. Her insecurity may have also been exacerbated by the fact that her previous boyfriend, Matt McCartney, had cheated on her. Apparently, Jody's new appearance didn't raise any concerns in Brewer, as the couple purchased a home together in Palm Desert in 2005. But sharing a home with Brewer wasn't enough for Jody. She wanted to get married and have kids. Brewer explained to her that he'd already done those things and wasn't interested in doing them again. This revelation soured their relationship. Brewer made plans to move back to Northern California in the summer of 2006. Jody didn't want to give up the Palm Desert house, but she also couldn't afford it on her current salary. Her manager at California Pizza Kitchen told her about prepaid legal services, or PPL, as a way to make extra cash. Now known as Legal Shield, PPL sold legal service products through multi-level marketing, to learn more about the company, Jody attended a weekend conference at the MGM Grand Casino in Las Vegas in September 2006, and so did Travis Alexander. Travis felt exhilarated as he walked the casino floor with the other PPL executive directors. He was sure that this was exactly where God intended him to be. He thought back on where he'd come from, the fear, the howling pain in his belly, the roaches and rats he pretended were pets. And now, he was an executive director, earning over $100,000 a year. It was all thanks to his faith and hard work. When they reached the restaurant for the reception, one of the directors, David, greeted a beautiful blonde woman at the door. Travis was struck from afar by her radiant smile. He believed that she was exactly what he deserved. He had to meet her. Again, God showed him the way. 
David motioned for Travis to come over and meet his exquisite friend. Travis didn't wait for an introduction, instead offering his hand directly to the woman. Hi, I'm Travis. Her hand was soft. She was blushing. She told him, I'm Jody. Nice to meet you. Travis and Jody were inseparable for the next 48 hours. He invited her to join him that evening at a PPL banquet, exclusive to top earners in the company. It was an honor just to be invited, and she showed up that night in an elegant evening gown that fulfilled Travis's arm candy fantasy completely. When Jody realized that Travis might be interested in her romantically, she told him that she was living with Daryl Brewer. He appreciated her honesty, but still wanted to keep in touch. They exchanged numbers and said their goodbyes at the end of the conference on Sunday. Travis returned to Mesa, Arizona, and Jody to Palm Desert, California. On Monday night, Travis called Jody, and again on Tuesday night, and also Wednesday. They talked about how important marriage and family was to feeling truly fulfilled. Travis suggested that Jody shouldn't be with a man who didn't want those things if they were important to her happiness. When Travis called on Thursday night, Jody told him the relationship with Brewer was over. He was happy for her. They made plans to meet up that weekend. Coming up, Travis and Jody's flirtation intensifies, and Jody shows the length she'll go to prove her love. Now, back to the story. In September of 2006, 29-year-old Travis Alexander and 26-year-old Jody Arias met at a PPL conference in Las Vegas. They quickly hit it off and started a long-distance relationship with Travis in Mesa, Arizona, and Jody in Palm Desert, California. The weekend after the conference, Travis and Jody made plans to see each other again. Travis's best friends, Chris and Skye Hughes, lived in Marietta, California, about 70 miles west of Palm Desert. Travis was already planning to fly in for a long weekend and Jody could drive over. The Hughes were also devout Mormons. To abide by the law of chastity, Jody and Travis would sleep in separate bedrooms during their visit. But after dinner, Travis whispered to Jody that he would come to see her after Skye and Chris fell asleep. According to Jody, late that night, Travis slipped into her room without saying a word and started to passionately kiss her. He pulled down Jody's pajama pants and performed oral sex on her. Jody said of the encounter, quote, he knew what he was doing for sure, but it felt like too much too soon. I was uncomfortable, end quote. But when Travis asked Jody to reciprocate, she agreed. Sky Hughes refuted Jody's retelling of that night. According to her, Travis told Sky that they did kiss, but then he left her wanting. Either way, Travis and Jody's romance was solidified. They met again the following Wednesday at a coffee shop. Travis gave her a copy of the Book of Mormon and they talked about his faith. He wanted Jody to consider converting. After all, they could only get married if she was Mormon. Jody reported that after the coffee shop, they drove separately to a nearby park because Travis was horny. Jody again performed oral sex on him, but afterward, 
he refused to kiss her, telling her it was gross. If she was hurt by this or felt used, it didn't stop her from continuing the long-distance relationship with Travis. A few weeks later, they had another rendezvous in Ehrenberg, Arizona. Allegedly, Travis told her that, according to the law of chastity, they could do everything but have vaginal sex. They spent the weekend in a motel doing everything but. After this trip, they continued to email, text, and talk on the phone every day. Through the course of their relationship, Jody and Travis exchanged 82,000 emails. In addition to growing their connection, Jody was studiously absorbing everything Travis had to teach her about the LDS faith. Travis told Jody that he'd never met anyone more prepared to receive the gospel. On November 26, 2006, less than two months after meeting Travis, Jody was baptized in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Palm Desert. Travis, as a church elder, performed the ceremony. Jody's abrupt spiritual awakening can be tied back to the BPD. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, sufferers of BPD often view relationships in extremes. They feel either intense love and closeness or extreme revulsion. While still in this intense love phase, Jody was willing to do anything to maintain that feeling. If conversion was what it took to marry Travis, that's what she would do. It's important to note that the stark highs and lows of BPD can often be managed with professional therapy and, in some cases, medication. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, psychotherapy is considered the cornerstone for treating BPD because it aims to address the emotional dysregulation associated with the condition. With therapy, sufferers of BPD are given the tools to identify mood swings and seek solutions. However, Jody did not receive any formal treatment for her illness. According to Jody, after the baptism ceremony, she and Travis went back to her house in Palm Desert. They went upstairs to her bedroom. Travis spun her around, bent her over, unzipped his pants, and began having anal sex with her. Jody said that the sex was painful and she wanted it to stop. Travis finished by ejaculating on her back. Sky Hughes contradicted this story too. She said that Travis came to the Hughes house in Marietta following the baptism ceremony, not Jody's. After the baptism, Jody and Travis were unable to meet again for several weeks. Travis was swamped at work and preparing to host several relatives at his house in Mesa. It was going to be his first Christmas there. By December 2006, Daryl Brewer had made the move back to Northern California, so Jody probably felt lonely being by herself in the Palm Desert house around the holidays, while she knew Travis would be completely surrounded by his other loved ones. As it turned out, PPL was hosting a corporate event in Arizona for Christmas, not far from where Travis lived in Mesa. Jody decided to attend. She let Travis know her plan and asked if she could stay with him, but his house was already full. There was literally no room, no couch, no futon for her. Jody decided to make the trip anyway, but she declined to book a hotel room. Travis's temples throbbed. He'd only been able to sleep for a few hours and he'd woken up with a headache. What had happened last night? 
He'd been stone sober his entire life, but this was the closest to a hangover he'd ever felt. He got out of bed to get a glass of water from the kitchen. He turned the previous night over and over again, but he still couldn't parse out exactly what he was feeling. He tried to consider how much Jody cared for him. She'd had good intentions in surprising him, but to barge into his home, uninvited, interrupting his time with his family, it made him feel, well, he wasn't sure exactly how to describe it, but he knew it didn't feel good. Travis frowned. She'd introduced herself to everyone as his girlfriend. That was a real cherry on top. He hoped no one took it too seriously. After all, they'd only been on a handful of dates. When Travis got to the bottom of the stairs, he saw something piled under the Christmas tree next to the presents. He took a few steps closer. It was Jody. She had spent the night curled up under the tree, using her coat as a blanket. And suddenly, Travis recognized what he was feeling. He was embarrassed. After this uninvited visit, Jody felt like her relationship with Travis had changed. She went to Chris and Sky Hughes, Travis's close friends, in January of 2007. She asked them for help and confided in them about her relationship with Travis. Jody poured her heart out to Sky and Chris, crying at their kitchen table, telling them how much she loved Travis, but how she also felt underappreciated by him. She said he only called her late at night, when he was exhausted and couldn't carry on a meaningful conversation. He had encouraged her to date other men, but then jokingly called her a skink when she took his advice. Skye, moved by Jody's clear affection for Travis, intervened on Jody's behalf. She emailed Travis, urging him to recognize the potential in his relationship with Jody and to change his behavior towards her. She wrote, quote, Travis, with love, you are a heart predator. You take great joy in making women fall for the tea dog. You laugh about what you can get away with. It would scare me to death if my little sister liked you. In fact, I wouldn't allow it, end quote. Travis was furious with Sky's meddling. He fired off a reply email with the subject, you've crossed a line. He accused Sky of causing irreparable damage to his relationship with Jody planting the idea in Jody's head that he was some kind of man-whore. Skye replied, quote, Know that I would love to see you marry Jody. She loves you. So much that she is afraid that bringing up anything that is bothering her or letting you know she doesn't think you are perfect would ruin all chances to be with you. End quote. The emails continued, escalating on both sides. Chris Hughes said it was the only real fight that Travis and Skye ever had. They did eventually reconcile and everyone agreed how much they loved Jody. But later on, Chris accused Jody of orchestrating the entire drama, exaggerating Travis's actions towards her and preying on Skye's concern. Once again, Jody's BPD could be linked to this behavior. According to the Mayo Clinic, People with BPD can have an intense fear of abandonment, even going to extreme measures to avoid real or imagined separation or rejection. After Travis was quick to correct to his family that Jody was not his girlfriend, she probably had a growing fear that he might end their relationship. By going to the Hughes and claiming that Travis was indifferent to her, he was forced to defend himself 
by declaring how strong his feelings actually were. They were officially a couple the following month on February 2nd, 2007. In April, Travis and Jody spent another weekend at the Hughes house in Marietta. Having had a few months to reflect on the manipulation of the email fight, Sky watched Jody a little closer that weekend. She noticed things about her behavior that she'd missed before. If Travis was in another room, Jody constantly asked where he was or would try to find him. And if she did find him, she would stay out of sight and eavesdrop. When Travis returned to the room, she would be overly affectionate, kissing him like he'd just returned from a month at sea. That night, Sky confided her concerns in Travis, but he wasn't receptive. Jody was one of the nicest women he'd ever known. Sky was describing a creep. But Sky insisted that something was off with Jody. Then they heard a noise in the hallway. When Travis went to the door, he found Jody standing in the hall. She'd been listening to their conversation. She asked Sky if she was going to tell Travis not to date her anymore. Sky replied that she'd already told him. Chris Hughes described Jody's expression when she heard that as evil, unlike anything I've ever seen. She glared at them for a few moments, then retreated to her bedroom. Chris and Skye told Travis that Jody wasn't welcome in their home anymore after that night. That spring, Travis and Jody traveled together to a PPL conference in Oklahoma City. Jody noticed that Travis treated her differently in front of his work friends. He was distant, sometimes ignoring her, and he wouldn't hold her hand. This treatment most likely fed her already festering fears of abandonment. She was jealous of any woman Travis interacted with. According to Picture Perfect, the Jody Arias story, the night of the executive ball, the couple ran into one of Travis's female friends, Clancy Talbot. She had had too much to drink and was stumbling a bit. She fell into Travis. To catch her, he caught her by the waist. While he supported her weight, Clancy laid her head on Travis's shoulder. Then he helped her steady herself and she continued on her way. To Jody, it was a betrayal. She said, quote, I couldn't believe he was doing that, especially in front of our friends. I felt like I wanted to cry, but I didn't want anyone else to see that, end quote. Instead, she retired to the bathroom and wept for an hour. The next day, Jody confronted Clancy. She followed her into the women's restroom and cornered her, shaking with anger. She told Clancy over and over again that she and Travis were together now as an official couple. Jody held her in the bathroom for several minutes until one of Clancy's friends came to find her and she could escape. When she recounted the incident, Clancy said, quote, It was just so strange, so weird, so creepy, end quote. In addition to attending PPL events, Travis and Jody took several other trips together that spring. He purchased a book called 1,000 Places to See Before You Die, and they checked off several destinations, including Niagara Falls, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and several LDS holy sites in Illinois and Missouri. Unlike on their PPL trips, Travis and Jody shared a hotel room, and he was openly affectionate with her in public. 
Jody was falling deeper in love with him. According to Picture Perfect, one of Travis's neighbors had a casual chat with Jody at a PPL conference during this time. She told him about her relationship with Travis and that they were absolutely headed for marriage. The neighbor was surprised she confided this, and not because it was such a personal thing to tell a stranger. The neighbor knew Travis did not feel the same way about Jody. The neighbor later told Travis about this encounter. Travis admitted to the neighbor that he knew he needed to break up with her. He said, quote, It is unfair to continue the relationship with Jody when I don't feel the same. Coming up, Jody reacts to Travis's waning affection by moving 10 minutes down the street from him. Now, back to the story. By the summer of 2007, Jody Arias and Travis Alexander's intense courtship had started to fizzle. Their affection towards each other was unbalanced, and Travis knew that he didn't see a future with Jody. He had been aware for some time that he needed to break up with her. But ironically, it was Jody who called off the relationship in late June. This could have been related to another trademark of BPD called abandonment sensitivity, in which minor actions or words are interpreted as signs of a relationship ending. If Travis's lukewarm feelings were apparent to his neighbor, they were undoubtedly also noticed by Jody. Potentially as a defense mechanism, she decided to break up with Travis before he had the chance to break up with her. Therefore, she had decided to leave him and was still in control. In June of 2007, Jody snooped through Travis's text messages while he took a nap. She found several texts to other women, which she considered evidence of him cheating on her. She didn't confront him about it immediately. They were about to go on a two-week trip together and she didn't want to spoil it. When she returned to Palm Desert at the end of June, she called Travis to talk. When Travis saw Jody's number, he almost didn't answer. They'd just spent the last two weeks together and here she was calling already. But he knew if he didn't pick up now, she'd just keep trying him until he did answer. She'd acted weird the entire trip. Well, weird for Jody. Normally, she was all over him, and instead, she had kept her distance. She had been reserved. Travis answered the phone, not sure what to expect. He was annoyed when she told him that she'd looked through his phone, then increasingly panicked as she described the messages she'd seen. When she said she thought they should break up, he was bewildered. She said she didn't think either one of them was ready for a relationship, he scrambled to think of an apology, how to frantically repair the situation. But then he stopped himself. Honestly, he was relieved. He was ready to stop carrying this weight. He said, quote, I think you're right, Jody. We're not good for each other. We should end this, end quote. They broke up on June 29, 2007, but decided that they should remain friends. They continued to have their basically daily late-night phone calls. But Travis repeatedly made it clear that they were nothing more than friends now. Jody offered several times that they could still be friends and also have benefits. In many of these late-night calls, the two had phone sex. 
If Jody expected Travis to pine for her after they broke up, she was sorely mistaken. By July 4th, Travis started a new relationship with another LDS woman, 19-year-old Lisa Andrews. She was another tan, pretty blonde and a student at Arizona State University. He had met Lisa in the fall of 2006 at a church-sponsored campout. They became friends over the course of the weekend and started texting regularly in 2007. After he broke up with Jody, Travis and Lisa started spending more and more time together. Soon, they were officially a couple. Jody was quick to react to this new development. Two weeks after the breakup, she relocated from Palm Desert to Mesa. According to Picture Perfect, Jody claimed that Travis was excited she was moving to Mesa. She said that he loaned her money to help with the moving expenses and even let her store some boxes in his garage. Travis told her, quote, we can hang out more and figure things out, end quote. However, Travis's friends insisted that he was explicitly unhappy with her move. He made it known to everyone around him that he didn't want her in Mesa and they weren't together. A few friends expressed their concerns over Jody's behavior. Then, Jody rented a room in Mesa that was only four miles away from Travis's house. She later admitted that their close proximity did freak him out. However, when Jody was struggling financially, Travis offered to pay her $200 a month to clean his house twice a week. Some of his friends claimed that Jody actually offered to clean Travis's house for free so she could spend more time around him. During this time, Travis and Jody rekindled their sexual relationship. Travis took Jody up on her offer to be friends with benefits. Apparently, Lisa Andrews was a strict adherent to the law of chastity. While he developed an emotional relationship with Lisa, Travis continued a physical one with Jody. Jody reported that Travis would text her late at night when he wanted her to come over and have sex. He left the front door unlocked for her and she would sneak inside once his roommates were asleep. At this point, they were no longer following the everything but philosophy. They were having full-blown intercourse that grew wilder and kinkier with each session. Soon, they were meeting three times a week, always under the cover of darkness. But the more Travis and Jody slept together, the more Travis pulled away. He confided to a friend that he hated himself after each sexual encounter, feeling like he'd failed himself and his faith. But he couldn't resist Jody, especially when she threw herself at him. If Travis resisted the urge to text her for long enough, Jody would send him explicit messages and pictures to draw him back to her, and the cycle began again. As Travis and Jody continued these hot and cold spells, Jody's jealous behavior escalated. He was still dating Lisa Andrews, and that infuriated Jody. Jane Velez Mitchell, author of Exposed, The Secret Life of Jody Arias, described Jody's behavior during this time as unhinged. She would show up at Travis's house unannounced, inviting herself to join whatever he was doing. If the front door was locked, she allegedly squeezed inside through the donkey door. Travis accused her of stealing pages out of his journal that detailed the time period they were dating. One time, a friend dropped by Travis's house to check on his dog. When they walked in the front door, they smelled freshly baked cookies. 
Jody was in the kitchen. She offered them a cookie from a platter, the consummate hostess. Travis had no idea she was there. Travis recalled that one night, Lisa came over to his house to watch a movie and they fell asleep on the couch. He was awakened by his dog barking downstairs. When he went to investigate, he found Jody standing in the kitchen. He asked her what she was doing, and she admitted that when she saw them through the window, she decided to break into the house. Travis quickly sent her away. The next day, Lisa got an email from an anonymous account, lambasting her for being shameful in the eyes of God. The email threatened, quote, If you let him stay in your bed one more time, or even sleep under the same roof as him, you will be giving the appearance of evil. You cannot be ashamed enough of yourself, end quote. A few months later, Travis's tires were slashed. When Travis told Jody what happened, she rushed over to take Travis to the mechanic so they could be replaced. Afterward, they drove home, Jody following behind Travis. When Travis took the exit for Elise's house instead of his own, Jody called Travis to tell him he was going the wrong way. He hung up on her. That night, his tires were slashed again. The ever-present drama that came from Jody interfered in Travis and Lisa's relationship. Jody was always around his house and would constantly call and text Travis if he was out somewhere with Lisa. Then, one of Travis's roommates told Lisa that Travis was secretly still sleeping with Jody. It was the last straw. They broke up in February 2008, but it still didn't bring Travis back to Jody. Instead, he started going on dates with Marie Mimi Hall in March. Around this time, Jody moved back to California. She went to live with her grandparents in Wairika. She said she could no longer afford to live in Mesa. However, with Travis choosing another girl over her for a second time, she might have decided that it was time to let go of her hopes of a future with him. She wrote in her journal, quote, It stays with me. I can't get it out of my mind and my heart, but it still remains that I cannot marry him, end quote. While Jody's journals in the spring of 2008 spoke of nothing but Travis, he wrote about her only twice. The first entry expressed his relief that Jody had moved back to California. In the second, he remarked on the fact that an entire day had passed without any communication from Jody. He wrote, quote, Wow, I thought that would never happen. I loved it. No negativity, no distractions. I'm sure it was good for her too, end quote. Yet even after celebrating the space from Jody, Travis eventually resumed communication with her. It was mostly of a sexual nature, dirty texts and requests for naughty pictures. On May 2nd, 2008, Travis texted to her, quote, There's not a day where I haven't dreamt about driving my shaft long and hard into you. You are the ultimate slut in bed. You'll rejoice in being a whore whose sole purpose in life is to please me any way I desire, end quote. At the same time, Travis continued to pursue Mimi Hall. He was a 30-year-old Mormon bachelor. It was almost unheard of. Similar to Lisa Andrews, Travis saw a chaste, respectable woman who could potentially be his wife. 
he invited Mimi to join him on a PPL trip to Cancun that summer. She accepted his invitation, and he arranged for a plane ticket in her name. A little over a week later, on May 10th, Jody and Travis shared a late-night phone call. They talked for a little under an hour, having steamy phone sex. Jody recorded the conversation without telling Travis. While Jody continued to satisfy Travis's sexual desires from afar, his relationship with Mimi Hall stalled out. On May 16th, she let him know that she'd just like to be friends. If he wanted to take someone else to Cancun, she'd understand. But Travis followed through on his offer, and the plane ticket was already in her name. They continued to plan to travel to Mexico together in June. It's unclear how Jody discovered that Travis was taking Mimi to Cancun, but she was enraged by it. On May 26, they had a blowout fight via Gchat. In the transcript, Travis told her, quote, You're the worst thing that ever happened to me, end quote. It's unclear from the message exactly what they were fighting about. They referred to an event, but don't give any details. Travis later told a friend that he had caught Jody hacking into his Facebook account. But this wasn't the first time Jody had snooped in his account, so Travis's extreme reaction might have been motivated by something else. It's been suggested that Jody told Travis about the phone sex recording. Sky Hughes speculated that Jody tried to blackmail Travis with the tape, trying to force him to take her to Cancun instead of Mimi. Because of Travis's position in the church and the clear violation of the law of chastity the tape represented, if Jody were to leak the tape to church authorities, Travis would face punitive action. If taken to its extreme, it would threaten his church membership. They ended the conversation on bad terms. Travis typed to Jody, Stay out of my life forever. On June 1st, 2008, Jody made plans to visit friends in Pasadena, California, and then West Jordan, Utah. She rented a car for the journey and reached out to her ex-boyfriend, Daryl Brewer, to borrow two five-gallon gas cans for the trip. She told him she wanted to save time and not have to worry about stopping for gas. She drove from Wairika to Pasadena on June 2nd. She stopped at a Walmart in Salinas along the way and purchased a third gas can. It's also likely that she acquired brown hair dye there, though it was not listed on the Walmart receipt. She stayed in Pasadena with her friend that night and dyed her hair to change her appearance, in case she was spotted in Mesa. On the afternoon of June 3rd, Jody filled up all three gas cans. She also called her friend in Utah to confirm that she would be arriving the next day to establish her alibi. Jody neglected to inform her friend that she was planning to make an additional stop. After they hung up, she took the battery out of her cell phone and placed it in the glove box of her car to avoid any digital trace of her detour. She drove through the night without stopping, using the gas in the cans as necessary. She was going to visit another friend in Mesa, Arizona, too, but she would be in Utah the following day. After they hung up, she took the battery out of her cell phone and placed it in the glove box of her car. She drove through the night without stopping, using the gas cans as necessary. At 4 a.m. on June 4, 2008, 
Jody backed her car into Travis's driveway. She removed the front license plate from her car with a screwdriver. She retrieved her overnight bag from the truck. The front door was unlocked. As she had so many nights before, Jody quietly snuck inside and headed upstairs to Travis's bedroom. She had such a big surprise for him. Thanks again for tuning in to Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of the Jody Arias story. We'll cover the details of a murder, the investigation, and trial that follows. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Crimes of Passion is written by Abigail Cannon and researched by Haley Gray and stars Lainey Hobbs. 